Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Clear to Close. I'm your host, Alan Paris, joined as always by my co-host, Brian Traeger. And today's a special day where Brian Traeger is in the intro session recording room. Brian, what's up, Alan? It's good to have you back here. Hey, man, thanks. It feels good to be back. For those that don't know the uh, details and the the intricacies of recording a podcast, we typically record the session and then there are separate intro and outro recordings. For a while, Brian was on hiatus, I guess, from the intro recordings, but now is joining us again. And I have to say, nobody can see it right now, but Brian's quarantine beard, I guess, is starting to look quite ripe and quite rich right now. Oh man, thanks. It's good to be back. I don't know how I didn't get the invite, but it's nice. And yeah, you're right. And we were just talking. I might have to cut this thing off. We'll see. But it's big right now and it, it needs to get trimmed up. So it's uh, it's about the holidays, time for the holidays. We're recording this just a little bit before Thanksgiving. Any holiday plans? You staying put in Denver or are you going anywhere fun? We are going to be uh, holing out at my parents' house. My wife and I are going to make the trek and you know, just kind of quarantine with them for a little while. Uh, Just, you know, we want to go to the mountains, ski. That's what we like to do usually at this time, but they're not quite open yet. There's a couple that are open, but the ones we wanted to go to don't open until the weekend after. So instead of just being too bored ourselves, we decided, hey, let's go, let's go hang out with family for a week or so. Honestly, we're going to be in Minnesota. It's usually pretty cold. So I'm hoping it's a little bit sunny so we can go toss the rock a little bit outside. I don't even know the last time I tossed football around, but you know, Thanksgiving football, all the good fun. So we'll see how that goes. How about yeah, you? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be an interesting Thanksgiving for sure. We're going to um, have a small thing with just uh, my mom and my sister and her family uh, and stay put, but or stay kind of in there, kind of quarantined in, in Atlanta. But, uh, but looking forward to it, man, like I, I think this year has been an emotional drain for I think a lot of people. And then especially in the mortgage industry, productive and work drain after a while. I think I probably speak for 99.9% of the listeners in saying that I'm looking forward to a few days off. That's for sure. My gosh. Yeah. It seems every month it's a new record month for folks. Everyone needs some time off just to breathe, just to <laughs> relax a little bit. I don't know if that means putting Bailey's in your coffee in the morning or what it does, but let loose, have fun, relax. That's what we all need right now. And I I couldn't be more thankful for this holiday coming up. It's also my favorite holiday. I just get so happy. It's great. I'm actually, don't tell my aunts and uncles this and grandparents, but I'm actually looking forward to a smaller Thanksgiving. Like it's (laughs) the fact that we kind of have to be smaller groups or I guess are encouraged to be smaller groups. I'm looking forward to it. Like more low key, you know, just with your immediate family or your immediate friends. I'm really looking forward to it this year for sure. Gosh, see, I was I was kind of the opposite. I was really <laughs> looking forward to something big because I, we have a, a large extended family and usually we're cooking three or four turkeys for everybody. It's a big setup. And, uh, you know, a few years ago, it was introducing every single one of them to my at the time girlfriend, my now wife. And that's really tough. And you're introducing people to, yeah, 30, 40 plus people. It's like, oh my gosh. And then <laughs> now that we've had a couple under our belt, it's like now we can naturally just, you know, be in the flow. Who's got, yeah. who's got the new boyfriend or girlfriend that's here we can pick on. Yeah, you can uh, pack on them now. Yeah. So yeah, we don't get the big one, but it'll come back. Well, we got to jump in the episode soon. But, uh, but one question as we approach Thanksgiving, where do you stand? I feel like the world is getting divided. Well, the world is very divided on a lot of issues right now. But I think one common issue that always comes up this time is 
Are you putting out Christmas decorations before or after Thanksgiving? I was raised in a house where you don't even talk about Christmas until after Thanksgiving. Thank you. And my, my mother, God bless her soul, goes so hard against that, that she, she goes so hard for Thanksgiving. I think we counted last year, 45 little turkeys hanging around just in random little pockets underneath the table on top of the mats, all everywhere. And so, yeah, no, no music, no, no. I think maybe the day after that's when it starts going. Yeah, I agree with that. My wife, my then fiance, now wife, and I would always get our Christmas tree like the day after Thanksgiving, which seems like a, a fitting time. But my neighbors are full Christmas mode, not to call them out. I don't think they listen to this <laughs> podcast, but they're full Christmas mode. Alex, my wife, used to be extremely firm on no Christmas before Thanksgiving, but it's starting to leak over and it's starting to change her opinion. And she's mm-hmm. wanting to get the lights out. And so now what we're what the plan is, is we might have lights on the outside of the house, but the Christmas tree will not be in the house until after Thanksgiving, that's for sure. That's uh, where, I, where I draw the line, so. It, that's fair. And obviously to each their own. I think it's, I don't mind it at all. I just, I, if you think about Christmas or any of the holidays before Thanksgiving comes, it's like, disrespectful for Thanksgiving. I agree. It gets, you gotta it gets give the it short end of the shaft. I mean, it's, it's, you gotta show respect. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. Well, with that said, uh, hopefully we didn't lose too many listeners during that little uh, beautiful discussion we just had. But this episode we're super excited about. So we have Christian Mazzarelli from uh, Cultural Outreach joining us. And they recently came out with this next-gen homebuyer report she did with National MI, um, which highlighted you know how millennials are approaching home buying and especially the impact during uh, COVID and what that's done in this segment specifically. Great discussion we had with her. I think we touched on a lot of interesting and relevant topics around and powerful topics around financial literacy and then also financial literacy in the gap that is between men and women and how this industry should be approaching that and the opportunity if we approach it, what the financial return can be for a lot of these lenders, as long as the social return for doing good in the in the community. So before we jump in the discussion, we need to mention our sponsor and presenter of this podcast who makes it all possible, our beloved employer, Maxwell. If you don't know who Maxwell is, Maxwell is a leading digital mortgage platform powering over 200 community lenders across the country to provide internal efficiencies, attract and keep the best LO talent, and ultimately provide a better technology forward borrower experience. Maxwell has been a tremendous success with the digital mortgage platform point of sale. But along with the powerful platform, Maxwell has recently launched their technology-powered outsource fulfillment services, which is able to provide the highest quality onshore outsource fulfillment talent to lenders at offshore costs, saving between 20 to 40% on fulfillment costs and opening up capacity, especially in these busy times. And these aren't newbies. The average team member has over 20 years of mortgage experience and is able to provide lenders with some of the highest quality processing, underwriting, and closing service talent. To learn more about Maxwell, visit us at www.highmaxwell.com. That's H-I-M-A-X-W-E-L-L.com. Or email us at meetmax at highmaxwell.com. With that said, let's jump in the episode. All right, so Kristen, uh, super excited to have you on Clear to Close today. Uh, For those of you that don't know Kristen, you likely have probably seen or heard her at a conference that you've attended. She's spoken for many conferences, consulted for some of the biggest names in the industry around the subject that we're going to talk about today. So Kristen, first off, welcome and thanks for joining Clear to Close. Great. Thanks so much for having me. 
I guess let's start with one of the most recent things that you and your team at Cultural Outreach have put out. Uh, that's the Next Gen Home Buyer Report. I think it came out a few weeks or months ago, depending on when you're listening to this episode. Wanted to uh, to go over that. I mean, I think you know, there's a lot of studies out there that cover millennials. You kind of categorize millennials different and and loop them up with Gen Z, which is kind of your term of of next gen. In your home buyer report, what was the summary? What were the big findings uh, for those that haven't read it? Yeah, so we decided to take a little bit, or we obviously read a lot of the studies that are out there about next gen millennials, Gen Z, and we wanted to really pinpoint some areas that we think would be most practical for lenders and financial institutions, realtors all across the board to be able to understand their market and take action to better reach them. So we were looking at everything from financial literacy to even some of their background and and cultural context for this generation. Uh, One of the things that I thought was super interesting at the time we were kind of putting together our study was um, looking at how our background, how our childhood even impacts the way that we manage money today. And so we think about that a lot in every other area of psychology, but we don't think about it with money. And so we asked questions around like, did you grow up learning how to make a financial plan? Um, And then we can look at how that results in certain financial habits today. Um, So I thought that was interesting. We did have some interesting findings around that. Uh, We also looked at just overall investing and financial habits, all of that, and found a pretty huge disparity across gender. Um, We looked at all different demographics, including race, ethnicity, what parts of the country they're coming from, um, socioeconomic status, parents' socioeconomic status, all these different factors. But this is the one that across the board was just a a huge disparity in how um, men and women were approaching home buying, which I found extremely surprising coming from this next-gen population. And then the other area that I think was most surprising to me was in looking at, like I said, we were looking at financial literacy. And I guess it wasn't surprising because it's something I talk about all the time, but um, just to see how... I think it's um, one in five of our respondents said that they were not confident in any step of the home buying process. So it just shows this huge need for a better understanding of the process and helping people feel confident going into it. Yeah, and I think I want to spend a lot of time in a bit on the gender gap and the differences in, in between men and women in the in the next gen report. I think that was probably one of the most interesting findings that I had when I when going through it. You know, I think another interesting thing is that the report was done during COVID, and so some interesting data around how that's changing people's buying behaviors, whether it's impacting their home buying decision, and and ultimately, is COVID impacting the group equally, or is it different by gender, race, age, etc. I can't believe I didn't mention that just now. <laughs> that was a really important and interesting part of the study. Um, when we first put it together, you know, it was right before the pandemic hit, and we we actually launched the survey early April. And so, that, you know, we thought this was going to last maybe a month. Um, so it was kind of interesting to see those initial insights. But then we did another uh, follow up survey in September uh, because we realized. That People may have changed the way that they think. And we also wanted to get a pulse on what people were thinking about home buying right now. Um, And that was really interesting to see some of the the results around that. We have seen, you know, like home buying generally, even with millennials, has continued to rise this year. Um, So we were looking at like, what are people thinking about that? Why are they buying? And I, I think through any kind of 
we can you know talk about any part of this, but one thing I found really interesting was that in any type of traumatic event or stressful event, people tend to want to feel safe and secure, obviously. And homeownership can represent that for a lot of people. Um, and then, of course, in a pandemic, when we're not really supposed to be leaving our homes very much, um, then the home becomes really important. Um, you realize you want more space and you want to you want to be a little bit more grounded in your local community. From our results, a lot of people wanted to buy a home sooner. They wanted to have more space and they also wanted to take advantage of the low interest rates. Um, so those are a few insights there. But I think there is a lot of interesting data that came from looking at the both surveys. That's funny. Uh, my wife and I had, you know, we fell in right in the averages there. We started to look around at our small place and said, oh my gosh, I wish we had a room where we could work out in, uh, do the home classes, all that stuff. I'm working in uh, one of the bedrooms and we work out sometimes in the living room. So it's, it's really funny how, you know, those smaller aspects of your life that used to be somewhere else, you want them right next to you. Uh, it's also a big time saver not having to travel and commute to those things. And that's that's interesting that uh, we fell within the averages, I guess, not super interesting, but good. Yeah, I would fall in that category too. I think before COVID, we were not on a direct path to home ownership, but ours is probably more slightly more financial just from how great interest rates are or were and still are today, I guess, depending on when you're listening. Hopefully they'll still be good. Uh, but yeah, I think like you spend, especially in the COVID environment, you're spending so much time in your lockdown in a place, you can feel every square foot of your house and figure out what what could be different, what could be better. And I think it has likely accelerated. If, as long as somebody has the financial means and their job security coming out of COVID, I think it obviously has accelerated a lot of people in that in that home buying decision in this in this group. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people have kids at home as well. So suddenly they're having homeschooling and, you know, two people working from home or multiple people working from home. But even for just little things, like you were saying, if you're working from home and you see something constantly that bugs you about your place, um, it just can drive you crazy. You, like have to resolve that before you keep working. So it's a good distraction too. And with all these people who then may want to enter the, the home buying process, there's a lot of misconceptions out there. And so it is super interesting to see some of the data of that, the confidence level of folks, one in five, not having confidence in the home buying process. That's, it's a lot, to be honest with you. Uh, there's a ton of data out there. It's really hard to go and figure out. Usually when you go into a, a mortgage website or a mortgage company's website, there's a, an about me or a mortgage 101 tab. And it typically is just this copy and pasted PDF almost of text for scroll, scroll, scroll for a long time. And you're like, what did I just read? Or you're going to fall asleep halfway through. And so it, getting folks who are interested to understand that it's possible is a big gap, I think. Yeah. One thing that I've been talking about even before the study is the importance of uh, people talking to someone that they trust. Because for millennials, we entered adulthood during or right after the financial crisis. And so there's not a lot of trust around financial institutions to begin with, but then we go online and you think that that's a, you know, it is a place that everyone starts their search. Even our study showed that 98% of people were starting their search online for gathering information and confidence, but then there's conflicting information. And yeah, you're looking at a mortgage company's website and they're telling you it's a good time to buy a home. Like, okay, go figure, you know, but um, the problem is that we do want to talk to someone and, or get some better information that 
empowers me, that tells me exactly what my situation looks like, but I don't know anybody, you know, and, and that I don't have access necessarily to a tool that I think I can trust. So I, I think that's a huge gap. I think there's some areas that that's being filled, but I mean, a lot of the people that I interview next-gen homebuyers frequently in addition to this survey, but one-on-one, tons of people say that they just don't feel like, who are they going to talk to? All of my friends come to me to talk about home buying. And I'm like, no, I, I'll direct you to someone else. But um, you know, people just don't know um, someone always that they can trust in that space. It continues to be understated on the the trust issue from a lot of millennials from the 2008 housing crisis. I think whether it was seeing it firsthand with their parents or not having a job out of college during that time or losing their job if they're already in the workforce, there is a a long or a deep and rich untrust with financial institutions in this group. And it takes that nurturing and that trust building in order to get them to take that next step. I mean, like you see the data of you know, the boomers by the age of 30, 49% own homes, next gen only 36% own homes. And I think many times the industry, and I've I've seen this in conferences and heard walk by stages hearing people say this, say it's because that group is buying avocado toast or that group is just traveling the world and doesn't want to settle down. But there's financial reasons and there's trust reasons that is a big part of that gap today. Yeah. And as much as I despise that joke about avocado toast, um, I, even though I love avocado toast, I, I do think that there is a gap in financial literacy overall. So yeah, maybe people, I think a lot of people think that homeownership is so out of touch that why not live today and, and buy the, you know, get the extra guacamole or the avocado toast. What I would like to see is that everyone has access to making their own homeownership plan. Like if we knew, even if it's in five years that I'm going to buy a home, if I have some kind of path and I understand what that looks like, then I can make smart decisions for myself, you know, but I don't, I don't feel like, I feel like it's just this kind of gray world where we don't really know what our next step is financially. A lot of times people go to their financial advisor or representative to talk through their plans, but mm-hmm. we know that a lot of those folks aren't loan officers. They're not truly educated in the deeper inner workings and the complexities of the mortgage. And they'll just refer you to somebody who is. And then those people typically are interested in the transaction now. They don't have time to wait for what you said was maybe six months, a year, five years to get on a path to then be in a position to purchase a home. They just want it now. So that gap in itself right there takes a lot of investment, time, resources to take on that top of funnel and nurture that lead, or really it should, maybe it's not even supposed to be looked at as a lead, uh, but it's a completely different mindset and shift uh, from what either a mortgage company, a bank, a credit union has today, which is more focused on the transaction itself and a right now approach. So yeah, my question is kind of, how do you convince these folks to dig deeper, um, higher up in the funnel and have a longer conversion rate and have education be a focal point of it? Yeah, that's why I'm so passionate about the outreach part of this because yeah, you're going to get people that are ready to buy are going to make it happen, you know, or they they that know that they're ready to buy and maybe have a financial plan or whatever. But there's so much of the market that would qualify that just doesn't know that they they would, you know, and um I've interviewed 
several people actually that have said that once they started talking to someone, they realized that buying a home could happen way sooner than they thought. And they like buy a home right away. So, but how do we bridge that gap? And yeah, I think it has to come from pretty massive initiatives that are not just about being able to, um, I don't know. I I think that you need to have some kind of strategy that is going to be long-term and think about it as I'm cultivating the, you know, it may be two to five years down the line, but knowing that a lot of those are going to convert right away. So um, I think that, especially in this industry, we think about things in terms of six months at a time rather than thinking longer term. And I I really think that it's, uh, I don't know, short-sighted to not think about some kind of longer term financial literacy or home buying plan um, for this generation. Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, in your study, and I think it's it's not surprising is the biggest holdup for people is is down payment. And I think it's ingrained in people that you need 20% down. And so when you're evaluating a $400,000 home, you're saying, how the hell am I going to save for, you know, save $80,000 near $100,000 to get a home? I think in your data, it said 25% of people, you know, didn't even know they were down payment assistant programs, even outside of down payment assistant programs. How many people know that you maybe don't even have to put 20% down? You could pay as little as 3% down. Like it's also beyond the programs and the assistance, but it's, it's just understanding what's required to get a mortgage and who fits into that category or not. Yeah. And I can't remember what study came out that was talking about this, but there there is a large percentage of the millennial generation that thinks that you have to put 20% down. And so, yeah, I think that's an important part of the education piece. Um, That's why we've actually National MI sponsored the report and we've partnered with them for a long time because it is so important that people understand here's, here's your pathway. You know, there's Am I there's um, there's other products that people can utilize in order to to get there a lot faster. And also in this generation, we find that a lot of people, I'm not sure how it compares to previous generations, but it was a small percentage of people that expect to get any kind of gift money. So I think that, you know, understanding yeah, down payment assistance programs that are out there, but also just that's part of making your homeownership plan, you know. So financial literacy is a huge opportunity here. And I think that's it's somewhat intimidating because it's such a big, broad issue to solve. Like this, this is in how you manage your money from a day-to-day aspect. When did you learn to what a budget is? And then also what are the qualifications of a mortgage? Where does this responsibility lie? Who who should be doing this work? And what's the role of of mortgage lenders in in helping improve this? Because ultimately, I guess the pitch is, is that we can unlock a huge amount of home buyers that don't think they can get a home and ultimately increase sales for everybody. Yeah. Well, I wish this happened in schools. I do not understand why we do not have really robust financial education in schools and we have barely any at all. And even in this study, I think we asked um, one of the questions asked where they learned how to make a financial plan or something like that. And I mean, school was like very or home buying education. That's what it was. And yeah, school is very bottom of the list, like 4% of people or something. So yeah, it's not going to come from there in the near future, hopefully in the long term. But I think right now it makes sense for financial institutions and the lenders to provide that education. Because like I said, I mean, you're creating a longer term plan for this generation for the um, next round of leads that you're pulling in. But I do feel like 
you know, a lot of lenders or banks anyway, have community lending teams and they have someone that's active in the community. That's always doing education, all that kind of stuff. And they do it for regulatory reasons. Um, that team is not necessarily trying to, I mean, they're trying to get a lot of loans and low to moderate income communities and, and that kind of thing. But I wish that we had that kind of a team, like a pod type of structure that was focused on education in all communities, you know? And so I feel like, again, this generation is really disconnected from a lot of financial advisors, even, or anyone in, in that space. And so if we had someone that wasn't even taking loans necessarily, but just was constantly active in the community and doing education, I think that is a really, really worthwhile investment. Um, and then have a team, you know, behind them ready to take those leads and originate, you know, the loans from that. But I think that we're missing the mark entirely by avoiding having that longer term investment. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It It's really tough because when you go and try to pitch that model to an executive at your team or of your company, it's not traditional by any means. So does that area report up to sales? I don't believe it should because, it, again, they're worried about the, the more of the short-term transaction stuff. You really have to have it be separated into its own P&L to understand that it's a long-term bet. It's also part of just marketing. It's like more mm-hmm. guerrilla marketing where you're getting your brand name out there. A lot of millennials and next-gen folks tend to join companies, whether it be for employment or to buy their products, if they know that that company invests in the community or does some sort of charity work, those types of things. So not only will it help you drive leads in the future for those who are being educated and getting into a position to purchase a home, it'll also attract those who like what you're doing in the community. So there's a ton of benefits there, but it's not just going to easily flip on and your income statement is going to double. You know, It's really mm-hmm. unrealistic. You have to understand that it's going to take time, track it, have faith in it and continue it. Because if you just give up after six months, it's going to be a wasted opportunity and you're, whoever you know had that idea is not going to look good. So you have to get the buy-in for a long-term approach of this thing. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting because this conversation really is the same conversation we have about social media. Like if you, it's not something that is going to convert leads right away, but it's a very important long-term branding strategy uh, or part of your branding strategy. So either way you can develop KPIs around this. I mean, it doesn't have to be just like, oh, go out there and do some education because we care about the community. I mean, I do think that should happen no matter what, because like you said, It's been a while since I looked at data on the next-gen workforce, but last I looked, having an impact on the community was one of the top five values for someone choosing where they wanted to work. That's really important, but also, yeah, just general understanding of how that process or how you choose to work with a company. I think um, having impact on the community and education is really important to them. I think that going in that direction, you can look at... KPIs for how many people are being reached and educated and and then look at leads as well, but have some of those introductory KPIs that can help with that. I think that's perfect. One of the it's not a KPI of us at Maxwell, but one of the things that we're we have the opportunity to do is take two days of PTO to go and volunteer for whatever it is that we want to do that for. Maybe some people should adopt that type of philosophy and instead of just PTO, you know, go volunteer for the company and the community and get the name out there. And by being in the community, I don't mean going to golf tournaments. That That's not it. There are a tremendous amount of other things that you could do. I like to talk about, you know, going to the VFW, 
going to any of the religious gatherings that people go to. There's a lot of opportunity out there. You got to dig deeper. And that's why having focus from somebody or a team to continue to drive that uh, is important because otherwise people are just going to go to golf tournaments. Yeah. I, I think that having someone that is active in the community, that's that's their full-time focus. You may have to add some kind of commission structure to that based on some of the initial KPIs. But I think there's a lot of people that would find that work really meaningful and it it does pay off long-term way stronger than just focusing on the short-term lead gen. So, so, to, cha- so to challenge one of the the ideas or the, I think most of what we've talked about so far is somewhat of a grassroots guerrilla style marketing, I think, as you called it, Brian, I think to challenge that, isn't a lot of this database? Like, so a bank knows how much someone's making based off, you know, deposits on a regular basis. They know what their checking account is. They know how often they're sending money out of their credit card statements. And and I think independent lenders maybe have a, a challenge there and understand that. But there's the trust component you still need to overcome. But isn't this a lot of just looking at your user base and your consumer base on who actually is qualified and who's a good fit for this? And then starting that conversation and saying, hey, have you ever thought about homeownership? Have you ever considered what's holding you up from it? And again, it goes back to the building trust and then trusting financial institutions and and actually being a good fit. But I would almost challenge that this could just be a data problem to a large degree rather than a community outreach brand awareness problem. Yes, that is so key. I think that for a lot of lenders and financial institutions, they have access to a huge amount of data that they're not utilizing. And yeah, you don't have to just be sending people out and like, you know, the whole spray and pray kind of idea of marketing, but you can utilize the existing customer base. Um, Sales Boomerang is a, a really great company that helps lenders do that. But I think utilizing that data and then delivering personalized data in return um, is really important for this generation and just helpful all around. But if you can send someone like, here's what you, you know, it looks like you would qualify for this. And here's what that looks like. Here's a rent versus own, you know, analysis or something like that. That would mean the world to someone who um, not only would I be more loyal, I think, to my bank or whoever is sending that out, but I would also be much more likely to talk to someone because I have real data I can look at for myself. It's based on my situation, not someone just kind of convincing me, you know? I don't know. I I could go to bat on both sides of this thing too, because there are a lot of institutions that do study the data, the big ones like Quicken Loans for this is the biggest example. They spend all their money on the data scientists to find out when people are going to buy a home soon. And then also, when are they going to refinance or, you know, are they searching for Target gift cards? Like, oh, there's a lot of weird stuff I'm sure that they're up to. But again, it's that short term. I want a transaction now. These folks who use the data have to hold the data. So then it kind of eliminates the independent mortgage bankers, probably. And you're just talking with banks who have their checking account and other things. We're also talking about those folks who aren't even at that stage yet. A tremendous amount of people are credit worthy, but they don't have all their money in a checking account to you to analyze where it goes and doesn't. It's other ways. Again, we're talking about the distrust of financial institutions. People are holding their money and assets in other places. Uh, so that's where I kind of go back and forth. And yeah, it would be great to use data to get to this, but also people are selfish in the capitalist world. They want the transaction now. And so that mm-hmm. six, 12, five year nurturing cycle is expensive for those types of folks. I mean, I definitely don't think it's even that long of a sales cycle, but I think that 
um, it should have both components to it, right? I mean, not having like, yes, looking for those short-term opportunities, um, utilizing data, all that kind of stuff, but also gathering um, the more that you're active in your community and and able to connect with that audience that's completely untapped and underreached. That's a a big opportunity for your brand long-term. I also love my favorite point in in what you just made, Kirsten, was just disagreeing with Brian on on. <laughs> so I just added points in my book. Okay, so we've talked as a whole about this challenge of financial literacy. I want to bring it back to the gender gap in this. So this is a problem for this group as a whole, but especially for the female population. So can you dive into what you found in the study and the the takeaways from it? Yeah, this was honestly so shocking. Um, so just for context, single female buyers are the second largest cohort of home buyers. That's double that of single men. You know, segment we've been talking about for a while, the National Association of Realtors spotlights us quite a bit. Yeah. So going into this, again, these are next gen borrowers under the age of 37, but we found that women were just significantly less likely to have strong financial habits. Um, They were way more stressed as a result of COVID. Uh, I can look back at some of the actual data there, but it was really surprising to see that disparity. We ran the numbers so many times because I kept thinking, okay, what's happening here? We've got to have something off. Because for instance, men were three times more likely to be investing in the stock market. And they were still more likely to be saving, investing in even their 401k, like even stable investments, way overperformed. And so, you know, that that was really surprising. We controlled for a lot of different areas. We controlled for children, controlled for income. We even controlled for parents' income. And it still didn't look great for women. So the one area that we found correlated really strongly with this was uh, their childhood education. So whether or not they grew up learning how to make a financial plan. And I was surprised to see that even with our generation, we haven't come out of, I think, this disparity around how young boys and girls are treated maybe differently. I I think the next generation is going to look a lot different, but women were a lot less likely to be taught how to create a financial plan when they were younger. So I think that has a big influence on how their financial habits look today. It's a shocking difference. It's impactful. How should lenders be approaching this? Like, does that mean they should be focusing solely on these efforts solely on women or how can they action this in their in their businesses it's interesting because this is such a huge segment of home buyers so they're existing in the market this is an important segment to completely focus on one thing that it aligns really well with our previous conversation though around education this segment also significantly you know needs a lot more education um women were twice as likely as men to say that they didn't know where to get started. Again, that kind of confidence question is is important here. I think that for lenders to understand that this is a big segment that should be their focus now and in the future, near and long-term, that means that we need to be investing in education, not only around homeownership, but I think financial literacy as a whole. Um, And I think that that's one area you know, the childhood financial education isn't one that I think necessarily our independent lenders are going to be super focused on, though it is an area that I think lenders could utilize as a, a branding strategy. I mean, it's impact oriented, you know, saying like appealing to families and saying this is an important area. Look at this data point. We want to help solve this, you know, and participating in that. And I think that that's like more of a creative strategy, but 
But I think that the, you know, looking at the education, transparency, personalized information that we've all, we've been talking about previously just becomes that much more important when we talk about uh, single female buyers. I think you could also help solve it with two different factors of, of the mortgage companies. One is through leadership, like point blank, there needs to be more diversification and leadership in this industry. Every, any part of the industry needs more diversity, to be honest, because you have inherent bias in the marketing tools that you do or what, whatever it is that you do is probably going to look like who's the decision makers. And so mm-hmm. making sure that you are consciously making efforts to diversify your, your team and your thoughts and your decisions is hugely important to potentially getting better in this aspect. Two, on the individual level, you could also kind of work backwards. So we say, all right, there's a ton of women here who are credit worthy, of course, that just don't feel as confident or have as much education on these matters to go and buy a house. Okay, well, if they are credit worthy, that means they're probably having a good income or decent income. Okay, maybe in part of your community outreach is you're going to talk with businesses in the community. And you can give the pitch and start to build relationships with some of those employees about financial literacy, understanding it's going to take a longer time. There's a lot of unique ways that you can go about solving this. You have to think uniquely. And I mean, companies right now, they have wellness programs. Uh, They have a lot of like healthcare that comes with a lot of different stuff. Maybe other financial institutions should start to put more on financial literacy through those company programs, not just about lenders to help solve this. I think it's all financial services that need to go and do this. And what lenders can do for their part, you know, can be unique, but it's kind of a calling to everybody. Yeah, I think that's important, but also thinking about how how you're training your sales force and working with all different yeah, cultures, backgrounds, um, age range, and gender to provide some context for here's something that you need to think about when you're having these conversations. One of the data points that we found was that women were more likely to say that they were worried about getting taken advantage of um, in a sales transaction. So, you know, we've also all experience, like most women, I think have experienced going to buy a a car, for instance, and feeling like there's just, there's at least one point, I've had many points in my life where I feel like men are being condescending or, you know, acting like I'm not going to know what, you know, don't have as much knowledge as they do or something. And we don't want to feel like that in making the biggest financial purchase of our lives. So it's not so much about just providing the education because, oh, you know, we need more education. I think we need to feel empowered as consumers. So yes, provide the education, but also provide it in a way that tells me I can make this decision, a smart decision for myself. I'm not just looking to you to make my decision for me. I need to know that this makes sense because of X, Y, and Z, you know, and move it forward that way. Yeah, I agree. First off, Brian, I think, I think the statement around diversity and inclusion, I think is huge. I think the more you get diversity around the table, the different you approach how to solve problems and, and considerations that you wouldn't have thought of before in, in how to speak to your audience. And I think, you know, I think about this a lot. My background's all in performance-based marketing. And our goal was to, as closely as possible, create a personalized experience to get the best performance for turning that person into a customer. So the more we can know about them, the more we can customize that treatment, the better. And I think, you know, 
even if these lenders aren't using a ton of digital marketing in order to acquire customers, how they speak to some of their core audiences and their customers and taking these data points into consideration in changing how is what is the script when approaching a single female in home ownership? How should that be different than a single a male in home ownership? And I think there's a ton of opportunity of how you're speaking to your audience and how you're nurturing them through the sales cycle that should be unique. And I would challenge all lenders to strive for that like personalization as best possible and not a blanketed approach of how to how to acquire customers. And that also gets to the design and marketing approach. Like Brian, you were saying that you're going to see the person that's head of that initiative through their content, through their marketing. Um, and a lot of the content I see in this industry is very masculine. I think we've gone through things in a way and, and it looks older as well. So I think that's where diversity becomes really important for providing input, but also even on your design team and um, every aspect to help create materials that really resonate with your audience. You hit on something um that struck something with me when you said, don't make the decision for me. I want to be empowered to make that decision. And I remember we were, you provided the example I went through with my wife. We were at a, buying a car and it was during COVID too. So we had masks on. It was, it was just all, already a weird transaction. We sat down with a gentleman to go through the finances and he made us feel like idiots for not wanting the $5 warranty or whatever it was. And as many times as we said, no, he kept, he kept trying to make us feel dumb for not doing it. And uh, I haven't been a part of those types of conversations very much, but I kind of saw within that how I want to make the decision and listen to me. I can't imagine how often that in common that is for women. That was my first real experience of, of learning about it. And I just, I, it, it's really hard to, to teach folks to overcome or, yeah, it's, it's, it's really tough for, for folks. And I think uh, their education and that would be humongous too. Yeah. And everyone's experienced that, I think, in some way. I mean, whether it was when you were younger and someone was talking to you, like you didn't know what you, you know, how to make a decision or whatever, but all of that comes down to, yeah, if you can provide someone with information to make that decision for themselves, um, that's going to be a, a lot better and create um, more loyal customers, I think. Yeah, not to beat the same drum, but like trust is the big is a huge piece of it. It's it's like you look at data around millennials and what they want that experience to be. And I think naturally a lot of people think that people want to like they want millennials to text to purchase a home, but like that's not what they want. They want an expert. They want technology to to leverage and, and to provide transparency and ease of access of things that are tedious, but they want that expert and they want the person fighting in their corner so they can have the transparency and the knowledge to and have someone in their corner to make that decision for themselves rather than feel like they they're being sold to at a used car lot. At the end of the day, it's trust and it's it's building that relationship with that consumer at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. You spend a lot of time with lenders. Who's doing this well and what are the results from it? Like what what are lenders able to drive that of people that are forward thinking in this compared to the the standard population? There's a few that I, I really like. Movement Mortgage, I think, does a great job with their branding and um, and really understanding how to reach this generation. And you'll see that how you know they're very impact driven, all about how they give back to their community. And I think that is a perfect example of how to drive that impact oriented marketing. And then Prosperity Home Mortgage uh, is one of our clients, and they do a really great job in reaching underserved communities and focusing on you know recruiting for diversity and also 
um, training their sales force, their entire sales force on understanding diverse markets and being community, also community driven. Sunmark Federal Credit Union, this is a very small example, but I think it's a good one to point out. They hired someone who was, and this isn't necessarily next-gen focused, but they wanted to better reach the Latino community. And they hired um, someone to be completely focused on just the Spanish-speaking market um, doing education. And they grew their Latino business by like four times or something. It It was something close to that. It was a huge increase. And so I think that's a good example of here, if you are community driven, do something like this, you can get massive rewards. And I'm sure they're growing, continue to grow today. But yeah, those are a few I can think of. Any come to mind for you guys? I'll I'll echo Movement Mortgage. I think they do a great job of of investing in the community. And I think what what should be a positive sign to the majority of our listeners are community lenders. I think what should be a positive sign and make them feel bullish about this opportunity is that Movement Mortgage can do it and they're a national lender. And they so when you think about playing in the community, they've got hundreds of communities to go play in. And then when you think about these community lenders that are maybe extremely regionally focused or only are in a certain couple of towns in a state, it's easier for them to get more involved and directly involved in their community. And so even though it might look intimidating of movement doing a really good job at it, because they have so many more resources and a large organization, they've almost got a bigger challenge of how do you go do that in hundreds of communities that when you actually think about, oh, I only have to solve for one or two communities, I think that should make community lenders feel bullish about the opportunity and and to be able to tackle it successfully because they know that community better than anyone else. Yeah. One thing that we did with TD Bank is um, we went, they identified five markets they wanted to better reach young and underserved markets. And so, but we did some initial research in those areas and went and visited the areas, but we came up with a strategy that fit all of those markets. And so I think, you know, and then, yeah, the people on the ground know how to deploy that and implement that in a way that makes sense for them. Uh, But it's kind of like, you know, creating that federal policy and then letting the (laughs) states figure it out themselves. But, but I think that, yeah, it's definitely a scalable solution. You spent too much time in DC, Kristen. <laughs> yeah, I know. Back in or, LA. Or, we, or we've just been watching way too. We've been watching way too much news lately. <laughs> so, so you uh, you gave a shout out to a, a, a nearby DC company in Prosperity. Big fan of them with Tim and Justin. Fans of those guys. Another company that uh, I've worked with. And unfortunately, I can't remember the name, but I had reached out to them because they were featured in some sort of news article of, of utilizing down payment assistant programs and using that as their marketing push into their community um, and solving the problem of the difficult uh, back end or the operations of, of accomplishing and manufacturing these loans. I love this guy's story. I need to go and, and dig up that uh, his information and give him a, a proper thank you again. But he, it was great to just see how he's attacked a complex problem, which is down payment assistance, and really put an investment into it and got the the backings of his bank leadership to let him do it. And it, I think he started about 15 years ago, and it's been wildly successful with them as a part of their brand. And that was a huge success story. That's so good. Yeah, I mean, that also... And brings up the, the idea of just focusing on the customer experience. Millennials especially are going to feel responsible to make sure that you get the business, get future business if they had a great experience. You know, So I know when I bought a, my first home, I had such a great experience with my realtor. I was just constantly trying to think of you know, who's buying a home that I can send him business. Because not only do I want them to have that same experience, but I want him to continue to build his business, you know? So I think focusing on the customer experience is important. One that came to mind was Vellum Mortgage. They're a small DC-based company as well. And um, 
but they have really refined their process so that they can get loans in and out really, really quickly. Like that, I mean, it's just very efficient. And then their loan officers are freed up to be able to be more of an advisor through that process. And their reviews, I think, are really strong through as a result of that. So um, I think there's an aspect of obviously really passionate about the marketing piece and doing financial education, like just not neglecting the customer experience side of things. That's a great point. Well, Kristen, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, for people wanting to learn more about Cultural Outreach U, how can they, how can they get in touch? Culturaloutreach.com. Um, definitely check out the study that we did. I, I'm really excited about the results that we have through that. And then you can follow us on Instagram at Cultural Outreach or LinkedIn. Awesome. Yeah. And I uh, echo as well to download the home buyer report. We'll attach it in the links of the episode on our homepage as well. And then highly encouraged. I think it's well-designed, easy to read, easy to grab the information. You guys did a, an amazing job on it and appreciate you leaning into this opportunity and this challenge for the industry and, and excited on, on where it'll go in the future. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thanks, Kristen. And that's it. Another episode is done and in the books. We hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe and give us a review on what you thought, uh, whether it's this episode or Clear to Close as a whole. We love hearing feedback from our audience. And again, by subscribing, you will never miss a new episode of Clear to Close in your podcast feed. So go ahead and click that button before you go. Before we go, I want to give another shout out to our sponsor and presenter, Maxwell. Maxwell is a leading digital mortgage and services platform powering over 200 community lenders across the country to provide internal efficiencies, attract and keep the best LO talent, and ultimately provide a better technology forward borrower experience. To learn more about Maxwell, visit us at www.highmaxwell.com. That's H-I-M-A-X-W-E-L-L.com. Or email us at meetmax at highmaxwell.com. Until next time, we hope all of you have a safe and happy Thanksgiving.